And I want to uh, start reading uh, around verse 40 of Luke chapter 8, this story. And there's actually two stories in one, but kind of sandwiched. One starts and then another one interjects itself. And it's kind of like me when I tell stories. I tell a story, then I end up telling another story within the story. But this is what happened. Verse 40 said, when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him. And they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue. This is a pretty high up official. And, and it's, it's interesting what he did. It says, in falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. And this, you have to understand this would have been incredibly shocking to everyone. Knowing this very high up uh, ruler and religious ruler at that. And Jesus wasn't looked upon favorably by these people. And he comes to him and he throws himself at his, at his, his feet and he implores him to come to his house. And you immediately wonder, like everyone else would have been wondering, what would have caused him to do that? And it says he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. And that explains it, doesn't it? Now, there were other people pressed around him. And uh, uh, I want to skip this middle story, but simply to say there was a woman that had a hemorrhage issue, and she touched Jesus, and she was healed. And uh, so that was quite a thing to happen in the middle of it. Now go down to verse 49, we pick up the story again. And while he was still speaking, that is Jesus, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given her to eat. And her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Now, this is a fascinating story. There's a lot of drama and interplay in this whole thing, and I'm tempted to get engaged in it, but uh, that we get sidetracked from, I think, some of the main points here today. We all have certain desires. We all want security. We all want comfort. And, uh, and we do our best to kind of make an environment for ourselves, to seal ourselves in, to protect ourselves. It's interesting to me uh, the, the process of life by which things have changed over the process of my life. There's lots more regulations, safety regulations there than when I was a child growing up. No one thought about pesticides or safety on food or no one thought about helmets when you rode a bicycle uh, or knee pads or any of this kind of stuff. We just kind of it's amazing any of us survived. 
Uh, we rode around in pickup trucks on gravel roads, slip sliding around at uh, dangerous rates of speed, bouncing around in the pickup bed. No safety belts for us, never heard of it. Uh, so we, I was kind of raised in a different era, but, but I'm not suggesting that was a wonderful era to be raised in, but it was better than this one. Uh, no, <laughs> it was just more fun. Like, what can I say? It was a bit more dangerous, too. Uh, but nowadays, with all the regulations and all the safety devices, which are important, and the way you put your child into a car seat, and it's like moving house anytime you want to go to the grocery store now. You've got all this stuff. It takes, like, you have to plan ahead. It, uh, what would be like a 10-minute run to the grocery store is now an hour and a half because you've got all these kids to get strapped in and get safety the stuff that's happening, and, and uh, you have to, it, just all of it. But all of that is for the purpose, really, of security and uh, uh, comfort and protection. So I'm not in, in any way negative about that. I'm just saying times have changed. There's something in us. We do want uh, to create our world that keeps us from harm or keeps us from pain or hurt. And Jairus... And we do, it was a guy who'd kind of arrived at a station in life where we would say he's quite secure. And so you, you get uh, advertisements and adverts about uh, financial security. Uh, by the way, it doesn't exist. But, but financial security and do all of these things and be secure into, the, into your future and kind of guarantee your future by certain behavior now. Well, Jairus was one who had guaranteed his future. He is high up, official. Uh, he would have uh, plenty of money. He had everything that you could uh, possibly have to somehow guarantee a pretty good life for yourself. He had job security. But then something happened that was beyond his control. Everything else he could control, it seemed. Something happens. His, his only daughter gets sick, and she's dying. And he would give up everything, his pride, his job security. It's evident. I mean, this guy's a high up, and he's highly respected. And he does the unthinkable. He comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. Now, you have to understand, Jesus was not exactly highly regarded in that circle. And that was like a career buster for you to do that. But he didn't care about his career anymore. He didn't care about what anyone thought of him. He didn't care if, if people thought poorly of him. Uh, it didn't matter. Something else more important now mattered. He found himself in a situation that he couldn't control. And in life, regardless of how hard you work and try to uh, protect yourself, and we all do it, I do too. I mean, none of us want to live that dangerously. Uh, you know, I'm tempted once in a while. I've always, when I was a, a kid, I remember attaching a rope to a pickup truck and getting on my bicycle just to find out what it was like to ride a motorcycle. I thought, this might be it. Now, that was, I did survive that. Bicycle didn't. But I did survive that. Uh, so, uh, but none of us want to live too dangerously at, at all. But regardless of how hard we work, we really can't control our future. And I think there's something about that by which we, that is a statement that we actually don't trust God, and I'll say a little bit more about that. And in, in some ways, we put ourselves in the center, making ourselves like God 
to guarantee our own environment, to put ourselves in control of our own environment. Now, whether you are rich or poor, or whether you are middle class, educated or not all that well educated, can I just say to all of you, you have no control over the next few moments of your life. You really don't. The next five minutes, tomorrow, it can change suddenly. In life, regardless of how hard you work, you can't control the future. Success and security are absolute illusions. They really don't exist. Fact is, we're all, I have news for you, we're all gonna die. None of us are exempt from it. My father used to make fun of things like that with me, you know, and we'd talk about what I'm gonna do when I grow up. And he said, son, either be a doctor or an undertaker. He says, because people are always gonna get sick and die. And basically, you'll, you'll always have a job. But life really begins for people when, like Jairus, we come to the place that we recognize we're not God and we can't control the future. And we come to the place of dependency and we say, help. Because in saying help, you're really saying, I recognize who's really God around here. It's not me. I recognize the only person that actually has control of the future. And you get a reality check. It happens to all of us. A situation suddenly arises that you're not in control. And I can think of dozens of situations that have happened to me, and you probably can too, where you, it just, it's a reality check. I'm not in control. Something's changed. And some of them are certainly a lot more emotional for me than others. And one of those instances, uh, some of you may know about, you may have heard me tell the story because it's on my mind a lot, actually. I've never really kind of gotten past this, is that when our youngest daughter was born, and in those days, they were the days before uh, men were encouraged to be a part of the delivery process. We kind of had it made. We could sit out in the, in the waiting room and read sports afield and uh, assume that it's a breeze in there. <laughs> but this doctor friend of mine said, John, why don't you come on in with us? And I remember thinking, I don't want to do this. <laughs> but I looked at my wife and I thought, oh, yeah, sure. I want to, yeah, let's do this. And it was at that point that, I, that basically became evident this was a God appointment. Suddenly things happen that you don't expect. And everything seemed to be fine. And the doctor dismissed the attendants around, just him and the nurse there. And I remember him saying, looking to the nurse and said, BP, blood pressure. And she went, they, did, they had one of those mechanical things that you pump up. And, and, he, and he asked for her pulse and she didn't have any. And I'm there. And then he said, code blue, which is cardiac arrest. It was wonderful. We had a baby, beautiful little girl. It couldn't have been more, any more exciting. And in a moment, it changed. It changed me. I didn't care about anything at that point. I didn't care about dignity. Pride went out the window. 
I didn't care about possessions. And I remember them asking me to leave the room, and I would not leave the room. And while they worked on my wife, I'm crying out to God. Now, I don't care that they can hear me cry out to God. I'm desperate. Something more important has happened. My own pride or dignity didn't matter. I'm crying out to God. God, God. That God would intervene. And I'm blessed that he did. But everything's out of my control at that point. It certainly was out of the control of the medical staff at that point. Jesus came. And that which seems hopeless, he changes in a moment of time. Suddenly a circumstance beyond your ability causes you to face the fact that you're not God. And you need him. I wanted to make it right. If I could have done anything, I would have in that moment. If I could have done it, I would have. But I was powerless. There's nothing I could do. It's only God. And at times, it's the same for you. There's a situation beyond your ability. But in many of our lives as well, it's just the daily grind of life. Nothing changes. And you can begin to lose hope. And your life falls into this death-dealing kind of routine. It's just a grinding out life. And you would have hoped that your life would have had more to look forward to. And you don't seem to be any in control of it. It's the vicious cycle. Get up, go to work, do this, do that, come back, pay bills. And it's just a daily grind. Nothing changes. Years ago, and you, most of you wouldn't even know who this guy was, a guy named Tennessee Ernie Ford that has an amazing voice. But he used to sing a song for coal miners. It was a coal miner song. And, a, and it went like this. You load 16 tons of number nine coal. And what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. You see, coal miners working in the heart of the earth. It didn't get better for them. It just got worse. And they, when they didn't have enough money, they charged things at the company store. And the debt kept piling up. And they became slaves to the company. And Tennessee Ernie Ford sang about it. And sometimes you feel like that. Every day, I'm just kind of loading 16 tons of number nine coal. What am I getting? Just another day older, deeper in death. I just can't seem to get ahead. And it's the grind that helps you really think about it. It helps you realize you cannot guarantee your future. Whether it's a sudden thing that happens to you, like Jairus, or like me, that's happened to you, or just the daily grind. But Jairus heard about a man named Jesus and he understood that if you, if you go to him, sometimes things happen. I don't know that he knew that much about him. I don't know. But he heard people believed in Jesus and that Jesus could actually do, uh, make possible the impossible. Now, I didn't read the story in between, but Jairus was there 
when the woman with the hemorrhage came and touched Jesus and got healed. That had to be quite helpful. Especially when Jesus said, don't worry, she's going to be okay. But Jairus didn't care if people laughed at him. He went to Jesus, he yelled for help, and turning to Jesus means that nothing or no one is actually hopeless because Jesus can even raise the dead. Now that's a demonstration of regardless. Sometimes we think our situations are like dead. They're like hopeless. But Jesus can change all of that. Now, I'm very interested in what Jesus said to him. He said a couple of things. First he said to them, don't be afraid. Now, Jesus seems to tell that to people a lot. God seems to say that to people a lot. People who are in a situation that's beyond them or asked to do something they feel is beyond them, oftentimes that's what you hear. Don't be afraid. Gideon, don't be afraid. Joshua, be courageous. Be very courageous. Don't be afraid. I'm, why? I'm with you. I'm with you. And, and oftentimes the don't be afraid is followed up by you don't need to be afraid because I'm with you. It's kind of like when my little girls would have a nightmare in the night and I'd be able to go in and say, Daddy's here. Daddy's with you. And somehow it seemed to make them feel better even though there were monsters everywhere. <laughs> when, when, when Jesus talks to Jairus, he says, don't be afraid. When the woman comes to the tomb and she finds an angel there, says, don't be afraid. When Jesus appears to his friends after the resurrection, now that's scary. He says, don't be afraid. Because fear has torment. Fear is a declaration that we really don't trust God. Fear causes us to live below our potential. Fear is something that will paralyze you and keep you from moving forward or taking risks. Fear is something that causes you to live benign, safe, calculated lives and never really moving out. And we can miss the great purpose for which Jesus has created us in the first place because of fear. Fear breaks down trust. It breaks down trust in relationships. We're afraid to give our hearts completely to people because we're afraid of what they might do. We are afraid of rejection. We are afraid of being hurt or injured. Fear is a destructive thing. It's destructive to our relationships and it breaks down trust in God. You see... Believing God is not the same thing as trust. You can say up here, everyone here in this room, you're here because you believe God. Or you wouldn't be here. I believe God exists. I believe God. But not everyone in this room trusts God. And there's a huge difference. Trusting God erases it is coming to the place to where you know God's with you, his word is true, I don't need to be afraid. Trusting God means that you no longer have to be God trying to secure your own little world and make it comfortable and control it and be secure. Trusting God means whatever happens, I'm in God's hands. There's a big difference between just believing God and trusting him. Because fear breaks down trust in God. In fact, 
It's a symptom of the fact we really don't trust God. That's what fear is. God tells us all sorts of things. He tells us to trust him. He tells us to believe him. He tells us don't do certain activities. Not because he's a killjoy, but because he wants us to have an abundant life. Trust him. Because we can believe in God and not trust him. And I come across lots of people who believe in God. But the fear and turmoil of their lives, it becomes evident. There's no real trust in him. Fear breaks down trust. Now, fear breaks down trust in relationships that we're to have with each other as well. That's why we are not transparent with each other. That's why we're not clear with each other. That's why we won't let ourselves completely go. And, and we keep things in our minds. We fear what people will think. What if I were to take a stand? You know, I, should, I know I should do something about this, but what if I were to take a stand? What would they think of me? What would my neighbors, what would my relatives, what would my friends? What would they think of me if, on the job place if I were to take a stand? So fear keeps us from actually declaring who we are in Jesus. It holds us back. Now, the other thing about fear is, is because we're so addicted to acceptance and approval, and we guard what we say and do, which is basically a statement of fear and a statement that we want to be, we want others to accept us, and somehow that acceptance take a greater priority over than our own acceptance in Jesus. Now here's the point. Because I'm fully accepted in Jesus, because I have his righteousness imputed to me, I didn't earn it. Because I'm so fully accepted by him, I have confidence then to say and to be whatever he asked me to be. <laughs> it releases us. It sets us free. They laughed at Jesus when he said, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. Oftentimes we're afraid of what people will think and we shrink back into the background. And the worst kind of death there is is somehow to, to quit growing, to be some people are dead while they're still alive and to quit growing and quit uh, progressing and, and be, be the same person this year as you were last year. Jesus said, don't be afraid. Go for it. Trust them. You can be all that you need to be. Fear paralyzes us. What do you have to be afraid of? I love Romans 8. It's always been a comfort to me. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't need to be afraid. He's with me. He's for us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies I don't need your justification. Really, it's God who justifies. <laughs> I love this. Who is he to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is the right hand of God and he's now interceding for us. Wow, that's pretty powerful. God himself and the son of Jesus is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger 
or sword? No. And all these things were more than conquerors. How? Through him who loved us. For I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, the unexpected things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's what we say to those things. Now, that, that drives a dagger in the heart of fear. I can trust him. Jairus is at the beginning point when he understands that he can't control. He's fearful. He turns to the one who can. And soon as he takes this positive step of coming to the one who can, guess what? The naysayers will tell their doubts. And they'll come and say, there'll be others that'll come to you. I'm trusting God with this. They'll come and they'll, they'll do what they did here. Your daughter's dead. God can't help you. You're not smart enough. You're not good looking enough. You're not all those things. <laughs> the naysayers all around us. You know, I, I grew up I was a very poor student. And one of the reasons I was a poor student is I couldn't see and I didn't know it. I needed glasses. And the way I grew up, uh, I guess everyone assumed that a young kid could see. We didn't have all the medical stuff that was available in school today. So I went through school, I really couldn't read very well, couldn't see very well. I didn't know that till after school, and I got a pair of glasses. I went to this, you can't see, it's really. And he gave me glasses, wow, I can see. It was a miracle. <laughs> I couldn't concentrate on print for very long. I was, I was a horrible student, and I got very deplorable grades. I just barely got through school. They passed me because they didn't want to keep me around anymore, basically. <laughs> and I remember people uh, telling me oftentimes what I wasn't and what I couldn't do. And there are naysayers around, but I was always a daydreamer. Somehow there was something stirring in me that I think to this day I know was God. I didn't recognize it as God then. I was a daydreamer. I believed I could do things. I can do things. And I kind of got into superheroes and Superman could fly, and I thought, well, I could fly. I tied a blanket around my neck and got up on my mother's upright piano and jumped off to fly. And the floor come up and hit me in the face and just <laughs> kind of discouraged me as I somehow proved that gravity still exists. But I had this fascination with superheroes and things like Batman. I'm not saying I'm Batman, but there's no one in this room that's ever seen Batman and me in the same room at the same time. <laughs> I, I dreamed I could fly. I tied a blanket around my neck, and I didn't. Guess what I do now? I fly. 
I sit in a chair and I'm 35,000 feet in the air. And a lady brings me Coca-Cola. <laughs> I can fly. I still daydream. When we quit dreaming, we, we downsize the possibilities and we find ourselves in this hermetically sealed little box. And others encourage us in this little box to stay there by discouraging us. They say it's impossible. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. Now here's an interesting story. In 1903, at the very moment the Wright brothers were flying the first plane, there was an astronomer named Simon Newcomb. And he was finishing an article proving that flight was impossible at the very moment that the Wright brothers were flying. And this is what he said. There's no possible combination of known substances, known forms of machinery, and known forms of force that can be united in a practical machine by which men shall fly distances through the air. It is impossible. He finished his article, finished writing it, at the same time the Wright brothers were flying. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And the second thing that Jesus said to them was just believe. Don't be afraid, just believe. Now that's the second part of what Jesus said. This is what he wants to say to you today. Regardless of your situation, where it's the daily grind of fitting into a smaller and smaller box and losing hope that your life will ever be different, or whether it's the sudden, unexpected, frightening thing that comes upon you, Jesus says to you, don't be afraid. And the second thing he says is just believe. The world says, your daughter is dead. You can't. But you really can. She's, Jesus says, your situation's not dead. It may be sleeping, but it's not dead. One of my favorite scriptures through the years has been Philippians 4.13. I can do. I can do. All things. And that's a pretty conclusive and, uh, statement about everything. I can do all things through Christ who is my strength. I'm going to believe that. I believe there's nothing I can't do that he, he's asked me to do because he's there with me. And regardless of what you're dealing with, Jesus sees beyond the limits. Now, I agree. In you, there are limits. But with him, him, there is not. And what is the limitation that keeps you from being the person that God's created you to be? What is the limitation that keeps you from dreaming? What is it that causes you to give in to circumstances of life and therefore become despair, despairing and miserable? And not a lot of fun to be around either. Because Jesus is the turnaround specialist. Whatever the problem you're facing here today... Jesus is your solution. Now, let me just give you three things that will help you here today. First of all, lose the distractions. Jesus was careful who he hung out with. He went in the room and said, she's not dead. She's only sleeping. And people laughed at him and he threw him out of the room. I like Jesus. He's not as nice as people think. 
They said they laughed at him and he threw them out of the room. He did not want doubters near. He wanted believers near. We need to be around encouragers. I mentioned to you earlier that for years people told me what I wasn't, what I couldn't do. I'll never forget. It was early in my wife and I's marriage and we were uh, engaged in, in uh, leading church. And uh, I was in a very small church at the time. And a guy that I had a lot of respect for, I thought, hey, this is, he's, he's like way up here in my eyes. And I asked him if he wouldn't come and, and preach in our little church. And to my surprise, he said he would. And he came to our house. And he preached in our church. And I remember his name was Paul Sangren. I'll never forget him. I forget a lot of things. But there's certain things I won't forget him. And Paul looked at me one day. And he simply said, he said, John, you can do anything. I can't tell you what happened. It was like, it was like a branding iron came into my heart and branded that on my heart. I know it was a God thing. I really do. Did you know those words, John, you can do anything, turned my life around. It changed me. You need to be around people like that. You need to be in a church community that says, you can. You can. We can do it. He encouraged the girl to get up, and she did. He encouraged Peter to walk on water. How many of you know that that's not an easy trick? <laughs> and he did. He encouraged Zacchaeus to get out of the tree. And become the person that God intended for him to be. And he wants you to come out of your tree as well. Not just to be a spectator or an observer. But a participator in what God's doing. He told Lazarus to live. And he did. Are you getting the picture? We, we need those in the church community who will encourage us. You know why God gives spiritual gifts to people? Dylan was up here saying, he used the analogy of the body. He says, if you're a thumb, you need to be joined to a body. If you're an arm, you need to be joined to a body. That's how a body functions. Well, God gives all of you spiritual gifts. And we can use this analogy of the body to do certain things. The fact is, is that gifts are given to build up and to edify one another. And that's the way the church community ought to be. We're building up. We're edifying one another. We're encouragers. I want to run from discouragers. I want you to know that I'm picky about who I hang out with. I can say that because Jesus was picky about who he hung out with. I don't want to hang out with negative, discouraging people. I don't want to hang out with people that say, you can. I want to hang out with those that are more godlike that says, you can. We can get this done. Nothing's impossible in God. We can do all things through Christ, who is our strength. And as a church, we have a vision that's pretty big. One of our, our vision is this, that within 10 years, nine years now, that we want to start five new Jubilee locations and plant two churches and raise a million dollars to do it. Now, there's a lot of us in this room, that vision may not be burning strongly in our heart yet. 
But I'm just praying that it will burn in your heart more and more. Guess why? Because we can do this. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And he's called us to an amazing vision. And we can do it. And we can raise the money and we can develop the leaders and we can start more churches so that more people come to know Jesus and more families are restored and people are delivered from strongholds of addiction and people come into the light and life of Jesus Christ and out of darkness. We can do this. And I think we ought to be whispering in everyone's ear, we can do this. Would you do that? Tell the person next to you, we can do this. Come on. We can do this. <laughs> Good. Lose the distractions. And then secondly, refuse to give up. When Jesus died, his friends gave up. And they went back to the fishing business. Three days later, the unexpected happened because death cannot stop God's plan. And Jesus showed up on the premises. Live your life passionately, and let's refuse to give up. Okay, I'm going to lose the distractions, and I'm going to refuse to give up. I'm going to be like Jairus at the feet of Jesus, saying, come and help me. And then reach for Jesus. I need help. And it's kind of like me when Linda was a code blue. I needed help. And I didn't care who knew it. I didn't care who laughed about it. I didn't care about my dignity. I needed help. And I reached out to the only one who could help me. I didn't say, doctor, 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 please save my life. I said, God, save my life. I reached out to the one who could help me. Jesus is compassionate and he's merciful and he's all-powerful. He believes in us or he wouldn't have chosen us chose us and called us to himself to give us dignity and destiny and put us on a mission and to give us in the midst of it as we go an abundant kind of life not a death dealing smaller world hermetically sealed getting smaller dying while we still live in this death dealing grind of no no he came to give us abundant life hope dignity, a future is worthy of your trust today. This is what he says to you. Don't be afraid. Trust me. How many of you in this room, you know I'm, I'm actually afraid? How many of you in this room say, I, re I recognize today I believe him but I haven't trusted him? And my fear and my hesitation in my life is evident of that. Now, it's a decision. That's what Jesus calls on us to do. He said to Jairus, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. <laughs> Believe me, you can trust him. Okay, I want to do that.